So uh, our, for our uh, first morning panel, um, I know uh, we have biographies on the site uh, in full, so I, I will try and be mercifully brief. Um, and I want to preface this by saying, uh, if you have questions for our panelists, uh, you can uh, enter those in the chat on our website, on YouTube, on uh, Twitter using uh, the hashtag CatoSpyCon. So um, to keep this feeling like a, a proper conference, please think about uh, questions for our speakers and submit them digitally, and I will uh, relay them to our, uh, our panelists. Um, for this first morning panel to discuss um, the growth of the surveillance industrial complex and its uh, many, many facets, uh, I'll be moderating and we'll be joined by, uh, to my left in person, um, the excellent uh, Dana Priest, uh, uh, author of, uh, an investigative reporter for the Washington Post, uh, and author, uh, co-author of uh, Top Secret America, uh, a, uh, an account of the explosion and reliance on uh, intelligence contractors with top secret clearances. Um, behind me, uh, Kashmir Hill, um, who is uh, for a long time been a, a, one of our most incisive writers on uh, privacy and surveillance, um, starting with a, a little blog from a while ago called The Not-So-Private Parts, and now uh, having, by way of Forbes, arrived uh, as a technology reporter for the New York Times. And uh, briefly delayed, but joining us very shortly will be Professor Tomas Reed, uh, who is one of the planet's foremost experts on uh, cybersecurity and cyber war, um, and uh, author, among other things, of cyber, will, cyber War Will Not Take Place, and most recently, Active Measures, the History of, uh, uh, of Disinformation and uh, Psychological Warfare. Um, so uh, let's, uh, let's begin uh, in just a moment with uh, Dana Preetz and Kashmir Hill. Um, so I guess I, we should start with um, uh, your most recent uh, reporting. Um, the uh, NSO group has recently been uh, declared a persona non grata. Um, by the State Department um, was uh, found to be, this is a group, uh, group that provides, um, in a sense, sort of surveillance and malware services to governments around the world. Um, their software was found on um, a wide range of uh, human rights activists and journalists' phones. Um, can you describe a little bit those, uh, what you found in your investigation and, and why people should be concerned about that and why it's so unusual to see a private company um, doing what you would, you would imagine would be the, the work of, uh, of a, a not very pleasant regime's uh, intelligence services? Uh, okay, well, this was a really unusual investigation by 19 media organizations, mostly in Europe, and then the, the Washington Post, um, a partner in, in India and Mexico. And it really needed to be worldwide because the sale of Pegasus spyware by the NSO group, which is an Israeli, an Israeli group of former members of the cyber unit of, of uh, their intelligence agency, the 8200, group, uh, it really is a, um, a company that sells largely to countries that can't, uh, can't, can't develop their own spyware. So we're seeing, uh, just like we did 30, 40 years ago, 
the proliferation of arms, stinger missiles, things that were at the time very innovative, you know, how we saw them flood the market in, in, uh, in the South, in countries that couldn't develop them themselves. We're seeing that same thing with the spyware that's very sophisticated. In fact, it's so sophisticated that uh, it, it calls itself military grade and it needs the approval of the Israeli Ministry of Defense to be sold to any particular country. And that's because Israel needs to make sure that this whatever country is in, is in Israel's interest uh, to sell such a, a weapon to, really it is a weapon. Uh, and then uh, it was created, say the, say the developers, to find and, and enable the capture of terrorists and criminals. So nobody would be against that. But we're seeing it being used uh, in the Gulf states, um, in Mexico, in India, just in, by Morocco, against civil society. And in particular, what we discovered, and it was very painstaking because we had to do forensics on people's phones. So initially, we, we had just uh, 37 phones that we got people to give us to, to download the contents of and to have uh, Amnesty International's security lab look at, look at them. Um, we, had, uh, we found human rights defenders, many journalists, uh, lawyers for the human rights groups, and then activists, uh, peaceful activists, pro-democracy activists, and opposition political figures, especially in Mexico and India, uh, then, as the story was first made public uh, and named a number of countries, for instance, France, that apparently Morocco had spied on, we had indications that uh, the Moroccans had used the, this equipment against uh, French officials. So France looked at its own, looked at, you know, looked at their phones, and they within a month or so announced that they had found that Pegasus had penetrated or had attacked rather the phones of five ministers. So of course, you know, France was a little bit upset about this and Macron uh, asked for a session with Israel. The same thing happened in the UK where there were some um, uh, politicians who were surveilled. Uh, the same thing happened in the US even though at that time we had no indication that uh, any of the equipment was used against U.S. numbers, against the plus one numbers, and we still don't really. But um, recently they found that the State Department found that 11 employees at the Ugandan embassy uh, were attacked by Pegasus. So it is, it's an evolving story. It's a story that has um, many countries looking at its own, at its own phones, <laughs> at its own and, and also at, the, at, their, at the uh, intelligence agency's purchase of, of Pegasus, because of course it wouldn't necessarily be wide, widely known within a particular country who, has, who is the operator. So for instance, in Hungary, which initially denied, uh, initially denied that they had ever bought Pegasus even, now, about a month ago, admitted that yes, they did, and they were using it, no big surprise, but pretty uh, worrisome, against a group of journalists who were particularly tenacious, doing a lot of political corruption coverage. Uh, and then we find out a, a number of people inside their own government. Uh, and Mexico, too, which was the first 
purchaser of uh, Pegasus that, we, that we've documented, uh, and the most frequent user of it has um, said they're doing an investigation. And there in Mexico, it's, it's, it's internally used, whereas some states, for instance, we believe Saudi, uh, the UAE, are using it internally, but also externally. Morocco would be on that list as well. So against uh, people inside who uh, are dissidents, uh, but also dissidents abroad, and we have some belief that some of those states are working as proxies for other states in, in, some, in some instances. And so have you, have you uh, has this in a sense changed your own, uh, I guess, approach to your communication security? I mean, discovering the, the, the sort of shocking breadth of, of, of penetration? Yeah, absolutely. The way that we had to conduct this was was very laborious for those of us who really don't like to have to use, uh, you know, cumbersome OPSEC, as they, as they would call it. Yeah, we had to create, um, I can't go into it much, but we had to create our own secure system to communicate that was different than our laptops and our cell phones. Uh, and then, you know, in the US, we weren't that worried about it, but definitely some of our partners in Hungary, we had a couple partners who were actually penetrated by Pegasus uh, in, in Azerbaijan, in, in Mexico, in Hungary again. This little teeny group of investigative reporters called Direct 36, um, two of their reporters had been attacked by Pegasus. And, that, and yet they were not only willing to cooperate with the, with the uh, investigation, but they've continued to do some of the best work inside Hungary. Um, so it was it was a very it was a unique experience working on it. Uh, I wouldn't say again that I'm I've changed a lot of practices. I always recommend that people try not to use the technology that they try to get together with people. That's the surest way to defeat uh, electronic surveillance, but it's difficult, especially during COVID. But I wanted to say one one more thing, which is this to me is the evolution of what we documented in Top Secret America, which was that this technology, these contractors, they all grew up in the era of 9-11. And as a result of 9-11, the result of first the US government uh, just throwing money, the Congress throwing money at the intel and military uh, agencies in order to make sure another attack never happened, and yet don't grow government, God forbid. So who do you turn to? Contractors. And as we saw, more and more contractors within government said, or more and more people within government said, why am I working here when I can make twice as much doing the same thing and no accountability or less accountability for contractors? So we saw, and that's what we documented in, in Top Secret America, this huge proliferation all over the country in, in certain pockets. We called it an alternative geography of the United States because they were all these contractors were clustered around the, the big agencies. Uh, and we are seeing the, um, the use, the repurposing of military equipment, military tools that were used on the battlefield. The battlefield is not there in the same way that it was. The companies don't want to shut down. And they are finding other ways to uh, use their equipment. And, it's, it's everywhere. It's 
it's largely unregulated in um, outside of the United States, uh, outside of Europe. I think I, I think even Europe has recognizes it has a big problem with regulating some of the the companies that originate in Europe and in Israel as well, which I'd like to talk about later more because there's particularly twi a particular twist that's very interesting mm -hmm. when it comes to Israeli companies. Okay, I'm interested in all yeah. making it to circle back to that, but I want to I want to turn to uh, to Kashmir because speaking of being uh, you know, worrying about being monitored by the um, the very company you're reporting on, uh, I know uh, Kashmir has done uh, excellent work on uh, a little company called Clearview AI, uh, which specializes in face recognition, um, and uh, has, in a sense, found herself being um, roped into the story. Cash, what, what you can sort of, I guess, explain to people who may not have heard of it, what, um, what Clearview is and how you became uh, involved in reporting on them. Yeah, so Clearview AI is kind of in a, is a different type of creature. It's, um, in that cluster of surveillance contractors who have collected data in math and made it searchable. So kind of like an automated license plate reading company or uh, a drone company that's doing aerial footage, uh, except Clearview AI went and went online and collected billions of public photos. At the time I wrote about them, it was 3 billion. They now say they have over 10 billion and essentially made them searchable by face, uh, because facial recognition algorithms have just gotten so much better in the last decade than they were thanks to neural net technology. Um, and so they created this tool where you take a photo of somebody and it'll show you all the photos they have in their database that they also think are that person. And so this can be useful to leading back to someone's identity. And Clearview AI was originally planning on selling its tool to private industry. It thought it would be a great tool for you know, um, the hospitality industry or real estate firms to vet the people that are walking into the lobbies. Uh, but at some point they met with police officers and police officers said, this would be an amazing tool for us. And so they started selling it to local police departments. And this is um, kind of an inversion, I think, of what usually happens with, uh, with kind of surveillance or military equipment that it, it trickles down from the military or from federal agencies to local police departments. Clearview AI, Clearview AI actually climbed it up from local departments to federal agencies, um, which is kind of fascinating. Um, but yeah, so when I first started, I feel like Dana is going to laugh about this because when you know when I first started investigating Clearview AI, I am a person who usually writes about corporate privacy, consumer privacy. I don't usually report on surveillance companies. Um, and when I first started reporting on Clearview AI, there was very little about them publicly available. I was able to track some people who seemed connected to the company, but no one would talk to me. Um, and so it, at first I was able to learn very little about the company because they wouldn't talk to me. So I knew that police officers were using the tool. So I started trying to figure out which police departments were using it and connecting with police officers, detectives, asking about the tool, how they used it. And there I found people who were actually very willing to talk to me. Uh, the first person was a detective in Gainesville who does financial crimes. And so he basically, you know, somebody goes to an ATM, pulls money out um, and um, has done so fraudulently, you know, in you know, pulling from somebody else's account. So they have a photo of him. 
And he said, this has been great. It's identifying so many people that I haven't been able to identify previously because they weren't in state databases and the spatial recognition tool works, you know, so, uh, so much better than the tools I've been using before. And he's, he's like, uh, and I said, well, I'd love to see what the results look like. Like, could you do that? And he said, sure, send me your photo and I'll run it and I'll show you, I'll show you the results. And so I sent him my photo and um, I sent him three photos actually, because he had told me it works well in many different ways, like whether somebody's wearing sunglasses or has a hat or their face is um, partially covered. Excuse my fingernail polish, my five-year-old painted my nails. Um, and so I sent the photo to him. He'd been so excited to talk to me before this. Uh, but as soon as I sent him the photo, he stopped responding to any of my messages. He wouldn't take my phone calls. And so I kept talking to other detectives. Um, I told a, uh, I talked to another detective in Texas and he said the same thing. I'd love to show you what it's like, send me your photo. So I sent him my photo and he ran it through the tool, which is just an, like a, an iPhone app. And he said, oh, you don't have any results. There are no photos of you that are getting pulled up. And I said, that's so strange because there's a lot of photos of me online. And he said, yeah, it must be a bug. Um, you know, maybe their servers are down. Uh, and then he also stopped talking to me and it wasn't until the third time that this happened that I figured out what was happening. Um, sent a photo of somebody, they ran my photo, there were no results. And then the officer got a call from Clearview AI um, within 10 minutes of running my photo. And the person asked, you know, why are you, are you talking to a New York Times reporter? Um, why are you running this woman's photo? and they shut down his account. And um, it made me realize that Clearview AI, while they were kind of refusing to talk to me, they were monitoring me because they had flagged my face. Um, and so uh, this was, you know, kind of alarming for me <laughs> that I was, that, you know, my reporting and my sources being tracked this way. I also felt like an idiot uh, having asked people to run my photo in the first place. But it also meant that Clearview AI had access to every face that law enforcement was running and the ability to block somebody from having results, which is quite a huge power for um, you know, a facial recognition vendor that is now used by, I think, thousands of different agencies. So you know, I, I felt like an, an idiot in a way, but it was a very uh, illustrative idiocy. I mean, especially there's, there's a version of this, right, that is a nice story where um, you know, they're saying, hey, why are you running the photo of a New York Times reporter? That, that's potentially inappropriate or abusive. Um, but it sounds like you don't, that's not what you think was going on. Well, when I asked, you know, I, I eventually the company started talking to me. Um, and when I interviewed Juan Tantat, the CEO of the company, he's, um, uh, he's a, a developer, grew up in Australia, moved to San Francisco during the kind of um, the internet boom there, uh, developed apps, used to do like iPhone games and uh, um, he did um, photo, uh, Facebook games, iPhone games, photo app, um, where you could put Trump's hair on anybody that was in your photo. I mean, really kind of silly things before hitting upon this very powerful and popular tool, uh, popular for law enforcement at least. Um, I asked him about this. I said, you know, uh, I, I, I had this, this problem where my photo wasn't having any results. He said, oh, you know, that was just a bug and we've, we fixed that now. And he ran, <laughs> he ran the app on my face during our interview and it pulled up many photos. Um, and then actually I like, uh, this was before COVID, but I did cover my face with my hands like this and he took another photo 
and it still did pull a number of, of photos. Um, facial recognition really has grown quite powerful. Um, but, but yes, so he said, he said it was, you know, he said it was a bug. Uh, <laughs> the bug that yielded seemed... a phone call, apparently. <laughs> right, very, right. Very sophisticated. Yes, bug. I, but, but we kind of talked about it more. Um, um, we, we talked about it more after that. And he said, yeah, yes, they do feel they, they want to have some kind of monitoring that they recognize their pool, their tool is powerful. Um, but that the monitoring they're providing now is to the agencies, making sure that there's a trail that police departments um, can audit, you know, that you have to have case, case numbers associated with different searches, et cetera, so that, you know, police officers aren't just using it when they're out at a bar on the weekends to figure out who somebody is. I mean, so I guess it's better than, than, than them not doing something, although you wonder how would they, you know, detect it if someone is, you know, for example, running, uh, running a photo of a romantic partner without kind of creepily detailed knowledge. But, you know, it occurs to me that this implies, you know, okay, so that's, it's, it would be good if, if, uh, if they were looking at something like that, but also that, um, you know, this would in, in effectively entails sort of outsourcing the oversight function um, here to the company itself. So, so we're sort of asking, you know, ideally, right, you imagine these are the executive agencies that are using these tools and then oversight by other elements, uh, independent elements of, uh, of the public sector. Um, here you have the company that is, um, you know, selling this tool and presumably wants to continue to be able to sell it um, using its own, I guess, discretion and, uh, um, to, to try and conduct that oversight. Um, is, is that something that worries you? And to what extent is, is you know, are they in a kind of a unique uh, position to do that um, in a way that might displace other forms of oversight? I mean, would, would well, a local government be able to, um, to do the same kind of thing without robust assistance from, from Clearview? Well, I think for Clearview AI specifically, it's been a real learning curve being a, uh, you know, a government contractor as opposed to what they originally planned to be, uh, which was, yeah, you know, in grocery stores helping to identify customers so clerks could greet them by name. Uh, and so the, the oversight that they're doing now, they, they are creating oversight for the departments to do. I don't think that they are trying to scan the photos for abuse anymore. They're creating mechanisms so that departments can do it. Um, and so then it's just a question of whether the departments are, you know, auditing the use um, of the tool um, or not. Uh, and yeah, it's, it's, you know, I talked to ICE is one of the, is one of the agencies that started using the tool very early on. Um, they use it as, it's often happens with these surveillance tools. It starts with the children they were, using, um, they were using it in their, um, their CSAM unit um, to try to identify abusers um, that were in photos with kids. Uh, and, you know, I talked to um, the, the director of that unit who they eventually ended up buying Clearview AI. I think that they now have a half million dollar contract with, um, uh, with the company and, you know, she says that they do a lot of oversight, that you have to make special requests to use this tool, um, that they will, you know, only use it for some types of use cases and, and not others. And at the time I talked to her, which was last year, she said basically she had to approve like any use of Clearview AI 
which is which is interesting. I mean, I I actually think the the fundamental question of Clearview AI is um, is a is a difficult one. Um, I mean, it is such a superpower to be able to see someone's face and pull up all the other photos of them online. Uh, it is radical. It is transformative. It is something we have not been able to do before. At the same time, it is just Google. It's a Google for someone's face. Instead of looking for somebody by name, you're looking for them by face. It, there's no real private information here. It's just pulling up public images. Um, and so I, I, in the, the people that I talked to about it within law enforcement, some are very kind of scared of the public perception that they're abusing a face recognition tools. And so they have you know, stringent processes, but other people just say, you know, this is just Google. Like, I don't understand why it's such a big deal. I have a question. You know, when you marry up that capability with the publicly funded surveillance cameras that are everywhere now, you know, it's, it, it sounds like another way, it sounds like an equivalent to DNA or fingerprinting. And both of those require some process to get a, uh, you know, a civilian to turn over that. So my question is, in police departments, are there, are there rigorous rules? Are they using some kind of process to say, you cannot search for this person's face unless you have probable cause or something? Um, there are not a lot of rules around facial recognition. Uh, so it really hmm. seems to vary from department to department. Um, the way Clearview AI got its start, and this was very surprising to me, um, though now I understand it's it's kind of standard with local police departments, but it's Clearview I ran ads um, in, uh, for example, Crime Dex, a uh, a listserv for financial crime investigators, and just said, try Google for faces, you know, um, stop stop searching, start solving, try Clearview AI for free, and you would just send the company, uh, you know, your email address, and if it was associated with a police department, they would just send you the app and let you download it and start using it. And so initially, the you know the officers who were using Clearview AI were just doing so very independently, um, and I mean probably did not know the rules because typically with you know the the state databases um, or the national databases, the FBI's national database, um, DMV photos, there's a whole special unit, facial recognition unit. Uh, that you send photos to and they come back to, to you with results. And so I think something that has happened as a result of Clearview AI getting so much attention is that those units have kind of sucked up Clearview AI into their, um, into their, their oversight, into their domain, and that it's not something just any officer can have on their phone. But, but that is initially, it was just officers getting it on their phone and hmm. trying it out on uh, photos they had of suspects they hadn't been able to identify. I mean, this is, you, know, you think of the, the sort of Silicon Valley catchphrase, you know, that people try to move fast and break things. That is the idea that, um, you know, often tech companies aim to, um, you know, launch something that's sort of so novel that the, the kind of rules are not in place for it yet. So it, um, it's you know, sort of disruptive innovation that, that then you end up building a structure out. And, and it's perhaps a little more disconcerting even to think about, um, you know, police departments and intelligence agencies operating on that model that is deploying technology that's sort of sufficiently novel that there isn't actually a framework in place for it. And I think 
that's maybe something of, of a pattern we see um, you know, over time is, is that you have sort of novel technological methods um, that are you know, discovered and then employed often not very publicly for, for years before uh, anyone bothers to uh, you know, build any kind of framework of rules um, governing how that method or how those technologies should be used. Um, is that something that you, when you, when you looked at, uh, at intelligent contractors, is that, a, is that a phenomenon that you saw of, of the sort of the, the rules lagging, um, the novelty of the oh, methodology? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the difference was intelligence agencies by and large look overseas. So our rules for doing that overseas are, are very, are very liberal. Um, but it does remind me of, say, Stingray and some of the other cell phone uh, tower use, which, by the way, came from the battlefield and from Intel world uh, first, uh, that local agencies were, were so thankful to have, probably mostly for good reason, but there was no law that regulated it. So I, I did want to ask you whether... Is there, are there legislators now who have taken up the idea of trying to regulate the use or come up with guidelines that could somehow be, especially at the local level, where uh, communities might have no idea, and, and uh, officers may, you know, if there's no rules, they may not have a set of guidelines that they follow. There have been, so in a few cities um, and states, we've seen moves to put a moratorium on facial recognition. It's been banned in um, San Francisco City Council, uh, Bandit, Oakland, um, uh, basically all the suburbs around Boston. Um, but uh, in terms of regulating, so I've seen departments like, so Detroit, Police Department had had two incidents of wrongfully identifying somebody with facial recognition um, and arresting them, and they spent time in jail as a result of it. And you know what police officers always tell me is that facial recognition is only supposed to be a lead, and it's supposed to lead to further investigation before you arrest somebody. And that's part of the reason why there's so few rules around it because it's just supposed to be uh, the start of the investigation and not what the arrest is based on. Um, but as you might imagine, you know, sometimes, you know, this magical tool tells you this is your person and then you are able to kind of, uh, um, you have the confirmation bias and you just start finding all these reasons to justify it. Um, so basically poor investigations in Detroit. And so Detroit decided they're only going to use facial recognition in the case of, you know, major, major crimes that they won't use it for shoplifting, um, or, or minor things, um, so I've seen that kind of regulation and the band, but well, what about really political rallies? What about peaceful political rallies? You know, we've had so many of them over the last year. Have you found instances where departments were using that just on crowds, or for that matter, you know, political rallies where you know someone breaks a window? There's, you know, it's not a hundred percent peaceful, but yeah, um, but lots and lots of people who are not who are being peaceful are there. I mean, facial recognition has certainly been part of the investigation into the January 6th um, riot. And with the Black Lives Matter protest earlier, there have been uses, usually when there was some kind of violence within the crowd, somebody threw a rock. Um, I have not yet seen 
it used on a peaceful protester. Um, but, you know, uh, in terms of defining what what is a crime there 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 can be a lot of leeway there especially in protests which are often about you know disrupting um uh um disrupting a space um so yeah i mean this is i think i think police departments are supposedly you know watching for this um but there's not clear rules these are these are rules that the police departments are making um internally that they won't you know use these in ways that violate people's civil rights. I mean, you can imagine, though, uh, them collecting just hundreds of faces at a, at a rally and keeping them in a database just to see, you know, for further, for further cross-referencing. Is there, is there, are there any rules about doing that, about keeping people's faces in some sort of database to, to use you know, because I'm thinking of the, um, uh, even under the Snowden revelations that they had a time sensitive, you know, they had a time where they had to purge things out, right. of, out, of, out of their databases at the federal level. And I know the, the, the FBI operations manual, the dialogue as they call it, would have rules about not right. retaining that kind of thing, but, um, but local, well, not necessarily. It would be. I mean, it would, it would be a matter of internal rules rather than I think federal law. Whether you could see all sorts of abuses for that. You know, if you had one set of protesters and then everyone else who was an elected official was of a different ilk, you know, at some point they could just use the faces in the database to start harassing people in many different ways. Yeah, there was. I know there was incident, and I believe it was Ukraine a few years back where. Um, and this was not using face recognition, but um, more, more Stingray-like technology where um, attendees at a, a public protest had received text messages um, to apprise them that the authorities were aware that they had been present at, at this location at this time. Um, but one can imagine pretty easily a, a, a face recognition version of the same kind of oh, yeah. automate, automated notification and, and chilling. Um, you know, look, I, yeah, I wanna... certainly seen it in Hong Kong. Face recognition was being used during the protest. Yeah, um, mm. I, I want to actually touch a little bit on the, the sort of the relationship between when we talk about the sort of the surveillance industrial complex between sort of the obvious components, the the um, the NSO group and the uh, and the clear views of the intelligence contractors, um, but in a lot of ways they're often sort of parasitic on the. Um, in a sense, the kind of private voluntary um, surveillance industry, that is the, the companies that are increasingly storing large amounts of data that we have with varying degrees of willingness um, ourselves given up, right? Clearview, would you say is right that Clearview would not really be possible without Facebook, at least not in anything like its current form? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, so they've, they've, they've scraped many, many, many sites um, but Instagram is one that comes in a lot. I mean, LinkedIn, Venmo, it, I would say really the power of Facebook was, um, I mean, I think Facebook was a, one of the first companies to really convince us all to put public photos of ourselves on the internet right next to our names. Um, and, you know, this, this is a result of 
the way that we have lived online for the last two decades, then most of us do have many photos. And even those who don't, I mean, it's um, one of the officers I talked to, one of the first things that Clearview AI encouraged them to do was to use the, the app on themselves to see how well it worked. And this detective told me he'd been very careful not to put public photos of himself on the internet because of the work that he does, you know, kind of uh, uh, just not wanting to have much information about himself available to people that he is arresting, uh, you know, uh, leading to their prosecution. So he ran the app on himself and a photo came back from Twitter and it was from some kind of festival where he had been on patrol and he is, was kneeling um, in the back of someone else's photo. There's some people posing in front of him. And there he was, uh, you know, with his badge on, just clearly identifiable. And this is why, I mean, facial recognition is for, for undercover, undercover police officers. You know, we're seeing it, that recent report from the CIA where they say this is such a problem um, for their informants now that it's just too easy to, to track people with this technology. Um, it, yep. is, it, is a, it, can, it can be a real problem. Do you know much about its sale overseas? So initially Clearview AI was trying to sell overseas. Um, it, had, it, it, it first focused on the US market and the Canadian market and it was starting to making, make inroads overseas, uh, but it pulled back after, so after its existence became public about, it was about a year after they'd started selling to law enforcement that I wrote the article about them in the New York Times. And there was such a backlash in international investigations. Since then, Canada has ruled that Clearview AI is illegal. Australia has said it is illegal. The UK has said it is illegal. They ordered the they ordered the firm to to delete photos of their citizens and has said that you know they can't sell this tool there without um, without getting their citizens' consent to be part of it. Hmm. And I mean, it just illustrates the fact that the U.S. just has no strong federal privacy law. Yeah. Um, that this app is actually illegal in other countries, but. There's um, there's 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 very little here that has been done since Clearview Eye has been made public. There's lawsuits um, in Illinois. The Vermont Attorney General sued the company, and that suit is ongoing. But other than that, there's there's kind of been little. Hmm. Well, little it, you know, and you, would, you would really worry about the places that Pegasus is is used, right? In all the authoritarian and rising authoritarian countries. And what's to, present, what's to prevent someone else from becoming the next Clearview? This is, you know, that is, I think the bigger, um, the bigger concern is this is technology that is out there now. Um, I mean, what they have done is they've scraped the internet and paired it with a really good facial recognition algorithm. And that is something a copycat company could do. I mean, any of the tech companies could have released this, uh, yeah. Google, Facebook, any of them could have done it. And they didn't because it was, it was too taboo. And Clearview AI basically broke through that taboo. And I, I could definitely, you know, there, there's already another tool called PimEyes, which is a kind of public version of this. It doesn't work as well as Clearview AI when I've looked at it, but it is there. And I do think that there will be others. I would think that there are others that we don't know about because they're being sold exclusively to governments overseas. You know, perhaps, again, just like, uh, just like Pegasus. 
So I, we had a, um, a question from, from uh, Chip Pitt, uh, who I know is a, someone active in this uh, space here in DC, um, who wanted to first to thank you for your, uh, for your reporting, but um, was also a fan of, of your book, Top Secret America, uh, and was hoping you might speak to how things have evolved since that book was written. Um, this is what, what have you sort of seen evolving in this space since then? Is it better or worse? What are the new, the new entrants that you find most, uh, most concerning? I, I do, you know, we've seen the budget uh, stay the same, not really shrink as much as you would imagine it would after two wars, two hot wars, uh, no longer being there, but I, I'm not, you know, I'm not sure we won't at some point, but it's, it's difficult to cut back. Honestly, what I see is more of the technology being used domestically. Mm. And partly be because of the issues that we've talked about, which is the lack of regulation at the federal level, and then certainly not at the state or local level, except with some uh, exceptions, California, Canada, um, you know, I'm sure there are other places as well. So I really do see, you know, you can even see it in every time, um, Every time there's a potentially violent incident in a city, you, you see these people out in, you see the police in military vehicles and military uniforms and military weapons. <laughs> so that's our visual uh, access to what was probably mainly a foreign, uh, foreign tools uh, created after 9-11. But I do think that you know we are we are seeing more surveillance, all the tools. You know, I love the cell phone tower example because I can't tell you how hard I had to work to get that to figure out that this was this amazing tool that uh, that the intelligence community had developed that was being used by um, NSA in the battlefield when we didn't know that they had an expeditionary you know, unit or units, uh, and it was such a preciously guarded uh, piece of equipment because it was so powerful and, and invasive and so efficient, you know? I mean, when you looked at it, you'd like, good for you, you know? Now it's here. And is it here with any kind of due process? I don't know. And I would guess that it varies from, from place to place. And you touched on the the, uh, how closely guarded it was. I know one of the, um, the things that has, has worried people about uh, Stingray in particular is um, the way they effectively blocked um, disclosure of, of uh, the details of the operation of technology. There have been criminal defendants, for example, who um, right. you know, have, have wanted to contest whether they had been accurately uh, geolocated at a particular place. Um, wanted technical information to be able to have their own experts analyze it for potential problems. Um, and then effectively the, the uh, prosecution had to say, well, no, we have a contract and that says this is their proprietary information. These are trade secrets. We, um, and so we have to refuse. Um, you know, a lot of what we're talking about is, is, is uh, activity that if it were done directly by government agencies would be often subject to FOIA or local mm. but Freedom of Information Act requests. Um, there would be mechanisms for folks like yourself to get information. Uh, and of course, there's all sorts of exceptions. But um, formally, at least, in the absence of 
an exception that would have to be turned over, because one of the ex FOIA exceptions we know is um, commercial or proprietary information. Um, so to what extent does it in practice make it more difficult for you guys to, um, uh, you know, to sort of ferret out um, the, the nature of these tools um, when they move from kind of direct public control to contractor control? Oh yeah, it, and also when they move into the law enforcement sensitive arena, you know, there are a whole, a lot of exemptions from FOIA. What you do have luckily are, and this is, I remember how, how Stingray was unveiled, is you have, a, you have defense attorneys. So even though the initial criminal investigation may not mention a product, there have been very clever Actually, you probably don't even have to be that clever to spot, you know, how did how did this how did you figure out that my guy with the cell phone was getting off a bus and all your all your officers just had to you know just <laughs> just appeared. So we do have you know luckily here we do have uh, because we have rule of law and, and all the processes that that involves we have people who are going to have access just by the nature of being involved with that in an adversarial way, we're, we're likely to have more success than you would at the intelligence level, you know, finding out, finding out what's going on. But that does bring up my favorite topic, which is the, um, the sad uh, evaporation of local news and state, state news. I mean, we just have fewer investigative reporters that will be able to do this kind of work, and and that's a real a real crisis as well, especially when you look at who has it been that have you know unearthed a lot of this. It it really has been a combination of reporters, and I want to give a big shout out to the forensics people in Amnesty International Security Lab, in at Citizen Lab, and other other uh, do good organizations that have that are now training students to help them, you know, create a new army of people that will be in this business. Be in a business that we, you know, I as a journalist certainly cannot, cannot be in and rely on them and their work to, um, to do things like do forensics on cell phones to look for Pegasus. That's, that's a real, it's a skill and, and more and more people are getting into it, which is great. It seems like one of the one of the the reasons that we're um, finding this reliance on on external firms is, um, you know, it used to be for, for a lot of the 20th century, if you were interested in questions like uh, cryptography and uh, you know, the mathematics of secure communications, um, that essentially that was something you know NSA and a right. handful of other large right. companies were doing, and if that was the kind of work you wanted to do, you um, you went to work for them, or they found you and told you you should go work for them. Um, and they would actually work pretty hard to um, kind of put a lid on mm -hmm. research along those lines outside, uh, outside those, those, uh, those, those walls. Um, whereas now, of course, that's sort of a huge business. And so um, it's, it's just it's sort of not reasonable to expect that sort of the best, um, the best minds on something like computer security or, uh, or technology will be found within the intelligence agencies, which usually um, you know, can't pay as much as right. Google or, um, 
So, I mean, it, does that does that create a, a sort of an issue where, um, you know, partly just on sort of economic grounds, um, it, it is, it's in a sense necessary um, to rely on those outside parties because you, you, you kind of can't expect to hire Google caliber talent and have that be a, you know someone who spends a, a 30-year career at the absolutely, FBI. Absolutely, absolutely. I think this is the driving force for all this. Is is um, you know the the market, the desire to make money, people who can so easily move outside of the in, of the intelligence community, and now it's it's culturally acceptable at in in a way that it was not uh, 40 years ago. You know, 40 years ago, people went they went into teaching or something. They didn't go and make a bunch of money off things that they were taught in the intelligence world. In fact, it's gotten so bad that the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, I believe it was the, and could have been the CIA, sent out a memo to former, uh, former intel people saying they were addressing actually tradecraft. So they weren't addressing technology, but the, it was a big caution. Look at you. <laughs> These are classified things. They didn't put it this way, but this is what they were saying. Uh, these can harm the US national security interests if sold to the wrong people. You know, Beware of what you're doing. What they were really addressing, my sources said, was uh, the transfer of tradecraft, which is even more you need technology, but you need the tradecraft to, to make it a real tool. And the tradecraft, first of all, it's learned in the, in the classified world. So that means by its very nature, you are taking classified information and giving it to another country that may then use it in a way that is not to our advantage. And who is policing that? You know, I think it's very difficult to police. And this brings me to the topic I wanted to mention with Israel in particular. You know, they, the Israeli intelligence services, I think, and I'm told by people within the USIC, have a much more strategic, holistic view of uh, contracting and, the ICE and, and government agencies. In other words, they uh, welcome people going from one into contracting with the idea that those contractors are going to still be very loyal to the state and that there will be an informal exchange of information. And, and this is the way it is. And it's been like that for a long time. So, I mean, that means, uh, I, I'm not saying it's a good or bad thing. I'm saying in Israel encourages it and you can see if you go to Boston, you know, there's just so many Israeli uh, former Intel people who are working in cutting edge technologies and, and uh, startup firms and this sort of thing. Uh, but the one, you know, but the IC in the US remains suspicious about it because Israel is going to be the, the benefactor and even though Israel is an ally, it's, its interests are not always aligned with ours. So you can look at it as, as a good thing. Some of the people in the IC said, I wish that we had that kind of holistic view of, of uh, former officials. But you can also look at it the other way, which is, you know, and, and in the case of Pegasus, one of, the, one of the great stories that 
we touched on, but really not that much, is that um, Benjamin Netanyahu was using the sale of this technology as a, as a diplomatic tool in the Gulf to make uh, better relations with uh, Saudi, the UAE, and other countries, uh, not gutter, I don't think, but, um, uh, and he would go to those countries and pitch Pegasus. So it was, it was being used by him to open doors diplomatically, and that has evolved into more traditional diplomacy as well, as we saw, I think even this week, Bennett went to the UAE for the first time. Um, so they're, you know, so they're using it as a geopolitical tool as well. I mean, we do see, I think, some of the sort of the revolving door there uh, in the U.S. Is it's, although it, I think more commonly you think of senior senior IC people then going out to uh, you know, sit on the board of some right. uh, contract company. Um, Clearview seems like a, an uh, an odd sort of almost exception, right? In that uh, you're saying it was not really envisioned as an intelligence contractor. And you still talk about it as primarily of marketing to law enforcement. Do you see it moving into the intelligence space? Clearview AI? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> they already have. Um, the GAO did the recent, um, the recent uh, uh, report on facial recognition asking who's already using facial recognition, who's planning to, and surveyed a bunch of federal agencies. And I mean, it's already being used by DOJ, FBI, um, um, ICE. I mean, it's just, it's a very useful tool. Um, I certainly have talked to a lot of, of officers who have found it um, incredibly useful in their investigations. Again, always emphasizing it's just the start of the investigation. It's just a lead. And it says this every time you get a facial recognition report um, back, when you go through the official channels and have them have them search uh, state databases, it says, you know, this is not probable cause. You cannot arrest based on this. Um, but yes, it is. It is. It is clearly spreading through through the government. I would think that ICE already has a version of this. Honestly, you know, when when there are so many problems with um, insider threats in Afghanistan and Iraq, I think they developed mass surveillance tools. Have you noticed a change in um, the board membership of, of Clearview? Have they brought people in with more foreign experience or top level domestic law enforcement? Yeah, they just brought in a bunch of new board members that they announced in the last couple of months, um, including Richard Clark. Um, but yes, they have. Yeah. That seems to be uh, uh, another other pattern we see, right, is these relationships um, where, where um, you know, I mean, it's just familiar from right the military context as well. That um, the the way you the way you sort of make your retirement comfortable after a, a couple decades in government service is to sit on the board of uh, of, uh, of a contractor sort of selling things to um, the agencies you used to work for. Um, and you know, one of the, one of the, the things that's sort of I think a commonplace in security studies is that the effect of that is to um, Say you know, create a, a dynamic where there's there's a fair amount of lobbying um, for expenditures on uh, military technology that is you know sometimes of dubious um, actual efficacy. We've certainly seen 
uh, instances in the intelligence space of very expensive projects um, that you know stretch on for years, go over budget, and don't necessarily work or yield much of operational value. Um, as you were talking about the, uh, I mean, it sounded almost like the you know, the upbeat marketing of give you to uh, law enforcement. You know, hey, stop, what, stop searching and start solving, um, which is you know maybe not the way you ideally think of kind of procurement decisions being made for for uh, intrusive technologies. What I guess, what do you see? How do you see that aspect playing out? That is the sort of the the interface between the um, sort of the commercial interest, um, right? We've got a product that we want to sell, um, and you know the decision making process about how to decide whether a technology uh, you know needs to be used. Is this something that, that are there things that end up getting adopted because um, they're being sort of sold as this sort of sexy product? Um, in a way that something developed in-house probably wouldn't be. Yeah, I mean, I, um, uh, it, I think what was very effective here, and my understanding from talking to officers is that this happens a lot. I mean, a lot of these vendors have learned that this is the way to get adopted by police departments, have the officers clamoring for the tool and going to their procurement officer and saying, I've already used this. This has already helped me solve cases. We need to have this tool. Um, I mean, ICE, the first case that ICE used it on was a, um, was a uh, Yahoo found uh, CSAM in a Syrian user's account. And there were some known images, which is how it got flagged by PhotoDNA. I'm just and for, there were for, some for, images for viewers who may not know that acronym. CSAM is child sexual abuse material, so images of, of children experiencing sexual abuse. So Sorry. they and it, some of the images included a, a young girl getting abused, and it was an image that law enforcement had not seen before. And um, the investigator who was on it, it was clearly in the U.S. They could tell from the background of the photo, like the electrical outlets. It was this this girl is somewhere in the U.S. And so the agent who got this, you know, took um, took a screenshot of the abuser's face. He had included his face, which is kind of unusual, but sometimes apparently you do this because you're trying to basically join a group of other people who are sharing these images. And um, he sent it out as kind of a, a, a bolo um, to other child crime investigators and said, has anybody seen this guy before? And one of the people who got it was um, an investigator based in New York who was already using Clearview AI. And so she ran it and sent him a photo. And it was this Instagram photo of somebody at a, um, at a bodybuilding convention. Um, and the people who posed for the photo were not the suspect, but the suspect was behind them working a, um, a kind of um, vendor counter. And so the investigator was able to go from there and figure out who the guy was. And they arrested him um, within a month and he still had the child in his custody. So they were able to you know, save the child. But anyways, um, you know, he, 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 Clearview AI was what broke this case for them. And so ICE decided based off that case, we're, we're going to acquire, um, we're gonna you know, get a license to use this tool. But that's how this was tending to happen. They solve, they're using it in their cases, in active cases, which was shocking to me. I mean, this Clearview AI only recently had its algorithm um, tested by the National Institute of Standards and Technology. NIST has been testing facial recognition algorithms for the last 20 years. 
Um, Clearview was used by police for almost three years until it had its algorithm tested for accuracy. And so that really shocked me that the vetting that you're doing of this forensic tool um, is just happening in terms of kind of trial and error is it working on your cases and they, so they were tested by NIST they did quite well they do have you know one of the top kind of 10 algorithms um, in terms of accuracy um, in testing under test conditions but still it, it was pretty shocking to me that that is how it was making its way into officers hands. It almost reminds me of like the, sort of the Uber model right which is um, it's not clear this is strictly legal in a lot of uh, in a lot of regions but if you start up and get it running, you will create enough of a constituency for the product that um, the rules will be changed to uh, to accommodate the sort of the facts on the ground. Um, and and the marketing to officers. I remember when I did the domestic the domestic uh, side of Top Secret America. I went to Memphis, Tennessee, where they had a real a real time crime lab. Uh, which was at that time the first of its kind, and now if you look on the um, surveillance atlas that is available online, and Burl's going to talk about that later, I think, uh, you'll see all of Tennessee is like a real-time crime center now, it seems like. And they were using FLIR in the, in the helicopters, which at that time was a very controversial product because it was so invasive, and it had been used mainly by the military, and they got a hold of it somewhere, and you know, of course, FLIR is everywhere now, and it's it's no big deal. But at a time, it was it was thought to be so invasive that it shouldn't be used against U.S. citizens. So, I mean, it's it's so predictable what's going to happen. I'm sure they have a lobbyist now on Capitol Hill, and to the question that the um, the viewer asked, that's one reason Top Secret America hasn't shrunk because. There's been a consolidation of a lot of the smaller companies into the bigger companies, and bigger companies still have a lot of sway on Capitol Hill. Um, so I would expect that that's what's going to happen with Clearview. Wouldn't you? Yeah, I mean, and, and the, the only place where Clearview can't currently be used is Illinois, because Illinois has this, um, the, really kind of an in incredible law in that it's the rare time that uh, the law was moving faster than the technology. Um, it passed the Biometric Information Privacy Act in 2008, which says that you, uh, a company needs to get a citizen's permission, uh, resident's permission before using their biometric information, including mm. their face print. Mm. And so this is the one place where Clearview AI has run into trouble. They had to delete um, Illinoisians uh, from its database and it's fighting um, a class action lawsuit there uh, and a state lawsuit. It's been sued by the ACLU. Uh, Floyd Abrams is, uh, is their lawyer. Um, and they're, you know, one of their arguments is that they have this first amendment right to collect this data that they're just processing public information and that is not something yeah. Um, that can be criminalized by the state. Um, that hasn't been a successful argument at the at the, the state level so far, but uh, it does seem like one of these cases that could possibly make its way to the Supreme Court in this question of whether um, whether biometric privacy is um, is something that could be protected. But yeah, I mean, unless the U.S. passes a law that is like other countries have that say that you really do need citizens 
consent to process their information or specifically our face prints are protected. Um, I, I do think Clearview has a pretty clear path uh, in front of them of being able to keep selling their tool. Well, the other thing it reminds me of, I was, I teach a class, uh, I'm a, actually a professor at the University of Maryland's journalism school, and I have a class about censorship and disinformation. And we talk all the time about technologies that are, Facebook in particular, that are undermining democracies throughout the world because they're not doing content moderation, like they say, and because their algorithms favor uh, extremism and polarization. That's how they make money. So it, when you look at what Europe's doing with the GDPR and, and other things, privacy laws, you know, it is real. and this, uh, I would bet that they have laws against this kind of clear view technology, but they, they definitely have laws that are gonna uh, impact the sale of Pegasus, or the use of Pegasus against uh, civilians. Europe is really ahead of the US in addressing technologies in general, and that you know, reflects, you know, poor Ron Wyden is still like the one voice on surveillance. He's been the one voice, you know, or the most prominent voice for 30 years. Maybe we need, or maybe we actually have, and I don't know, a new committee that is filled with uh, people who understand the, um, the consequences of unregulated both social media and the cutting edge stuff that you're talking about. Because if Congress can't get its hand on, handle, a handle on this, you know, nobody, nobody will. Or it'll be so piecemeal that, um, that I think companies will find ways to, to get around it if it's piecemeal. And yeah, do you, do you see any of that happening? Do you see regulators you know, Congress, I mean, they're, they're, not even work, they're not even worked up anymore about what happened in the two, 2016 election <laughs> with, with Facebook and the Russians and now the Chinese. And well, I, yeah, I mean, it seems, it seems like in the US we've, we've just relied so long on, you know, the technology industry to self-govern. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, that's been interesting in the Clearview AI case because uh, a bunch of these companies, LinkedIn, Venmo, Facebook, they sent Clearview AI cease and desist letters saying you're violating, you know, our terms of service by taking the photos and using it this way. Um, and then crickets, they sent cease and desist letters and nothing after that. There's been, you know, so supposedly these are the companies that are supposed to be safeguarding our photos and they haven't gone after Clearview AI. They have not sued them. They have hmm. beyond kind of the anti-scraping technologies that they have on place on their sites, which obviously failed a year, um, you know, they haven't done anything. So the technology industry is not kind of leaping into the action the way that I think regulators you know, or lawmakers mm -hmm. kind of expected as they pass no, no laws around this. Well, and the same thing is happening with Pegasus. WhatsApp has sued NSO, the parent company, because they discovered that uh, Pegasus was used WhatsApp to get into phones. And now Apple has sued uh, NSO Group because of its use of Apple vulnerabilities to get into phones. So again, though, that is piecemeal. The courts only have so far they can go, you know, when you're facing these very tricky questions of First Amendment, uh, you know, it, it, it's not gonna be solved in lawsuits, I don't, I don't think. 
You know, uh, something that, that came up uh, here was the, the issues of different jurisdictions um, having different rules that, that uh, uh, you know, permit or block the usage of uh, uh, some of these, these private technologies. But I, I, I was mulling how, um, in, a strange, in a sense, odd it is that, that um, we find you know, countries increasingly reliant on not just the, you know, their domestic firms, but firms based elsewhere um, to do this kind of essential intelligence work. Uh, the, the FBI controversy um, around the San Bernardino shooter's iPhone and whether they could mm -hmm. um, find a way to access that was ultimately resolved by, uh, I think it was another Israeli firm that, that found a vulnerability that was usable. Um, and that just seems like an odd tension because you have the, the sector of, um, of government that is, in a sense, right, the most xenophobic normally. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. There's a classification marking no foreign, N O F O R N, right? It's, it's whatever else this, you know, this can't be shown to, mm -hmm. uh, to foreign nationals. Um, and then saying, you know, for this critical uh, intelligence work, um, we're going to have a company that's outside our jurisdiction um, be in charge of providing the service. And, you know, of course, the US intelligence community is still primarily relying on US companies, but this is increasingly a kind of global market. Um, and very often, uh, you know, countries are purchasing um, that don't have the sort of the in-house capability. Um, I, I wonder if anyone, either of you have sort of thoughts oh. on this idea of a kind of transnational um, I guess sort of intelligence apparatus um, that is not really bound to any particular government. No, and, and honestly, this is another really important argument why these things need to be be regulated. Because ultimately, so I'll take the UAE as an example. Uh, Longtime user of Pegasus, although we think that now NSO Group uh, stopped selling to at least some of the, of the operators in the UAE. I, I don't know if it's all of them, because they won't say. But then the UAE uh, has, well now they've spent um, you know, tens of billions of dollars to create their own capability so there was a transfer, I'm not saying of Pegasus, but there's definitely a transfer of intellectual uh, trade crap, whatever, to the UAE so that it can now have its own, uh, its own, its own technology, its own apparatus, to its own infrastructure, everything. Is that in the US interest? So is that in the US national security interest? So these technologies have a, play a very big role in, in, uh, in issues that do affect US national security. And yet we, we don't regulate them in a way that takes into account that important aspect of this. Again, that's the same way as social media. You know, why isn't why isn't what Facebook does an interest of national security? Because, again, it's lack of monitoring what happens. Just take you know one example in the Philippines, where Maria Ressa, journalist who just won the Nobel Peace Award for her efforts to get for her efforts to chronicle Duterte's corruption, but also to get Facebook to be responsible in the Philippines, where they're being used by Duterte's uh, colleagues and 
to, to undermine democracy, why isn't the undermining of democracy through Facebook a US national security concern? Why isn't the, why isn't the undermining of US democracy through Facebook with disinformation a US national security concern? I think, I think it's a very short-sighted view of what social media is all about, of what the mechanism behind are co communicating with their friends and family? I mean, come yeah, on, so, we're I mean, so far beyond that. So what, so what would the regulatory intervention be then? Though I mean, this, this is a little, a little. Well, you go back to the algorithm. What does the algorithm do? The algorithm is programmed to create division through emotional content that drives people to the edges of extremism. This is so well documented now. So they make money off of an algorithm and a product that does that. So it pushes people unconsciously, not knowing, it pushes people to the extremes with disinformation that doesn't, that, uh, and. Do we, do, we, I mean, do we think that some of these things wouldn't happen? Not on a scale, not on are... a scale. Okay, and so why is that business model permitted? Honestly, why is that business model okay? When we don't do it in other realms, you know, in other realms, I think it would be so much more visible for one thing. And the fact that that is not something that, um, that Congress is looking at is, you know, I think. And would you accept that for the Washington Post if someone said that you're running articles that are divisive and promoting? Well, if, if, it, if that's mainly what we did, then I would, you know, definitely question, and if we mainly, if we made most of our money off of emotional content that was uh, fabricated or not real, you know, or, or, or disinformation, then I would think hopefully that we wouldn't get as many readers and that the market would do that, but um, <laughs> we, you know, we don't, we don't do that. So it's, it's not really, it's not really equivalent, and we don't. And it would be it would be visible. So part of the Facebook problem is the invisibility of its machine. You know of how it works, how the algorithm works, how the extreme. But there are now dozens of books on the subject. Um, and of course, we find you know we have sort of a parallel national security concern about um, the use of. Uh, uh, the, the, the popularity of technologies in the U.S. that are um, right, controlled by foreign uh, foreign firms that are not necessarily intelligence contractors, but often regimes that are, require them to be um, you know, responsive to the state. Um, right. So this was the controversy over uh, TikTok and, and WeChat that emerged. Um, we are running a little low on time. I want to oh. <laughs> uh, turn back to Tash and see if uh, she had a, a final thought before we uh, uh, before we had to. Uh, to close down for a few minutes? Um, just on the kind of international, you know, I'm working on this book about face recognition, so I am obsessed with face recognition right now. But I, I do just keep thinking about a world of interlocking, you know, surveillance cameras that are everywhere where people's faces just are, can be tracked anywhere in the world. Um, I wrote about a case earlier this year, some protesters um, in Minneapolis during the George Floyd protest who, uh, there was, there was camera footage clearly implicated. Uh, the, it was a couple, the man in setting fires at a Goodwill in a high school and ATF was trying to find them and they fled 
and went down to Mexico. And U.S. authorities went to Mexico and gave them their photos and said, please, you know, run these and and look for them. Uh, and that uh, they did eventually find them in Mexico. I don't think it was due to facial recognition that I could find out, but that we could have that world where, you know, no matter where you go, uh, what you are wanted for, um, why somebody wants to track you, it would be possible um, to track you. Um, and I, I just, I just think that, it'll, it, you know, and, and whether Clearview Ad goes into everybody's hands. I mean, we've been talking about just as a law enforcement tool, but this could be something we all use um, that you're hmm. just no longer able to be anonymous in public. Um, these surveillance tools, you know, they might not just stay in law enforcement hands. They may trickle down into the general public uh, and, and just just thinking about how they could be used one day. Yeah, this is a, a sobering thought to end on. Um, well, thank you so much, uh, Kashmir and uh, uh, Dana Priest. And uh, we're going to take a, a short 15-minute break, but we will uh, reconvene shortly for our morning block of uh, flash talks, which uh, I think uh, are uh, due to be fasting. So please... Uh, Tune back in in, uh, in just about 15 minutes, and uh, we'll see you there.